difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson is once again out this week, but will return for our next episodes. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So, every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're paying tribute to the late Jonathan Demme via a pair of joyous concert films. Genevieve, can you tell us a bit more about our selections? Certainly. When Demi died on April 26th at the age of 73, we lost a director of incredible range and empathy capable of working across a broad range of genres. He earned his greatest fame and acclaim for the 1991 thriller The Silence of the Lambs, but he preceded that film with comedies like Something Wild and Married to the Mob and followed it with Philadelphia, a drama about AIDS that doubled as a plea for tolerance and understanding. Demi also made a number of documentaries and, most relevant to us for this episode, concert films. Demi never made the same film twice, but his films have a shared, generous spirit that's an ample supply in a pair of concert movies he made decades apart. 1984's Stop Making Sense, starring Talking Heads, and his final film, 2016's Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids, which captures the final concerts in Timberlake's 2020 Experience Tour. We'll be holding our lighters aloft for both after the break. tape I want to play. To understand what Stop Making Sense is, it helps to understand what it's not. And finding a point of comparison is pretty easy. Just a year before Stop Making Sense, the Rolling Stones released a movie called Let's Spend the Night Together. And though directed by the great Hal Ashby, it's as dull a concert film as you'll ever see. The Stones look bored while performing their greatest hits under a sign welcoming, quote, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, which probably helps contribute to the band's mood. Part of the band that's not Mick Jagger, that is. The camera stays low and treats the band members as preening gods, cutting frequently to a crowd that's working itself into a frenzy that the film does nothing to make infectious. At one point, Jagger wears a football jersey for reasons known only to him. Let's Spend the Night Together isn't an unusually bad concert movie. It is, for the time, a typically bad concert movie. With rare exceptions, The Last Waltz comes immediately to mind. Concert films had a hard time translating the spirit of a live performance to film. Stop Making Sense changed all that, in part by telling a story. The film opens with a bare stage, soon filled by Talking Heads frontman David Byrne, who brings with him a beatbox and a beat, and launches into a solo performance of the 1977 song Psycho Killer. Then, slowly, he's joined by band members Tina Weymouth, 
then Chris France, then Jerry Harrison, and the sound gets fuller and more complex with each song. Then others fill out the lineup, including Parliament keyboardist Bernie Morrell, guitarist Alex Weir, percussionist Steve Scales, and backup singers Adina Holt and Lynn Mabry. With each edition, the energy builds and grows, and through it all, Demi shoots the band not as gods, but as characters in a drama that changes with each song, from the existential epiphanies of Once in a Lifetime to the sweetness of This Must Be the Place to the unbridled joy of the film closing Cross-Eyed and Painless. Yet for all the obvious choreography and preparation needed to make the film happen, Demi keeps it loose, letting his camera linger on the players, not just during the instrumental heroics, but as they interact with one another. He lets the sweat show. As staged by Demi, the band, designer Adele Lutz, and cinematographer Jordan Cronenworth, Stop Making Sense doesn't attempt to reinforce the mythology of the Talking Heads' greatness. It just shows it. Uh, when Demi finally, in the final moments of the final song, cuts to some audience reaction shots after keeping the crowd in the soft, focused distance, it feels earned. And it feels like a confirmation. Yes, the show was that good. And though we weren't there in Los Angeles in 1983 when it was recorded, for 90 minutes, Stop Making Sense makes us feel like we didn't miss a thing. So guys, whenever there's a discussion on the greatest concert film ever made, Stop Making Sense is always in the mix and usually at the top of the list. Having just rewatched this film, is that earned? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's move <laughs> on. Episode over. <laughs> yeah, the episode is over, yeah. It, it, it's absolutely, I think it has no peer. It's, it's certainly at the time, uh, I mean, there have been plenty of great concert films. I mean, you could look at Gimme Shelter or The Last Waltz. I mean, uh, you know, the, there's an interesting comparison between Stop Making Sense and The Last Waltz because both films were by major filmmakers. I mean, mm-hmm. was, Last Waltz was Scorsese. And both films are very meticulously planned out and, and choreographed and really made for the screen. But Demi cuts away a lot, some of the indulgences in The Last Waltz that we're familiar with from a lot of concert films and really just gives you the, the pure stuff. And I think conceptually, on David Byrne's part, on the Talking Heads part, the film is just miles above anything. Yeah, I mean, it is a mix, too. It's kind of what I got into in the keynote a little bit, but but um, you get these amazingly composed shots mm-hmm. where everything is, the lighting is perfect. Everyone, there's that one shot of like the two different rows of musicians, and they almost seem to be in different like planes of existence or something. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 so, it's so wonderful. But also you get these really loose moments like, you know, Byrne dancing with the backup singers. There's a lot of spontaneity, and, and I think, you know, you get... Just a few moments of them of people just kind of uh, doing their thing, you know, that that don't feel choreographed, and it's it's a nice mix there too. It's not completely like I love the last waltz, but it is. I think it was storyboarded, I mean, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure this was too. But the last waltz feels storyboarded in the way this this does. Yeah, I mean, there there's a narrative happening in the last waltz, and you know, there it's like interspersed with these other segments besides the concert, and mm. the, and stop making sense is just so much more pure. It is about this one performance and this one experience, and there is kind of a story or a narrative happening but it's all 
in that performance. There's not a larger story being told or like the band isn't being deified the way they are kind mm. of in the last waltz. It's it's a very pure concert film experience. You have Robbie Robertson's so ego swelling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to bag on the last waltz. I think the last waltz is no, it's an, just an, very an important, different, yeah. important film. But I mean, it's also just a perfect collaboration, an equal collaboration really between Demi and, and Byrne because, you know, with, with Byrne, uh, you know, so much is owed t- to his conceit. You know, I mean, there's a mm-hmm. continuity and an arc to the performance that's sort of baked, baked into it, where you start with the bare stage mm-hmm. and you keep adding performers and visual elements, and, and it, you know, the frame expands and you've got all of these performers on stage, and it just it feels like this wonderful buildup. And uh, that's that's something that you can credit Byrne with. And then on Demi's part, I think he really tried hard to make. Stopping sense a specific cinematic achievement, not rather than you know sort of the live supplement that we're used to see, that we're sure. often mm-hmm. used to seeing, you know, as part of a, a band's work. I mean, he got you know the titles are, are by Pablo Ferro, who did uh, you know Doctor Strangelove. He's got Jordan Cronenweth, who's a cinematographer who did Blade Runner two years before. You know, he's using you know digital audio techniques that had never been used before. Mm-hmm. So he cared very much about the sound of the film. You know, it had a substantial budget. I mean, this was like this is a real film. It's not it's not a film performance. In some ways, the story it's telling is also the story of the band, where it starts with this very spare sound. You have Psycho Killer, which first like not hit, but but maybe the first signature song, and, and it's kind of a piece with those first couple albums, which is. You know, David Byrne as a sort of this almost alien figure from a distance trying to figure out how, how the world works. And then as you add members and influences, like, you know, you bring, you find like sort of the African rhythms, they would bring in some of their later ones. Um, many of the musicians were the same they used for their 1979-1980 tour, which was wi- widely acclaimed and really opened up the, the sound of the of the band. So you, you kind of you kind of see that playing out over the course of this film in a really interesting way. And it, and it ends like, you know, this uh, Cross-Eyed and Painless is such an ecstatic performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, there's really nowhere to go from there. It is a, a natural climax to the film. It's, uh, yeah, it's 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 remarkably well put together. And I, I love how each one is its own film. It works beautifully together, but each one's kind of a film unto itself, mm-hmm. too. Like each each song mm-hmm. yeah. Each, yeah i think it, it's what a day that was yeah, um like that that could stand alone as a music video mm-hmm. the, the way it is shot like with those ghostly lit from below shots of the individuals and then kind of panned out to the shadow play on, on the whole stage it's just distinctive within the film as its own standalone piece and that, and that specific one too is one where you know the camera is held for a really long time mm-hmm. you most of that song you're fairly close on uh, David Burn, Burns yeah. face you know with the occasional cutaway so where you can see those uh, silhouettes so he does like to mix things up style wise and as Keith was saying before there is a playfulness and a spontaneity to it They're one of my favorite moments in the movie and this happens in, in burning down the house is where the percussionist sort of pulls a face mm-hmm. to the camera you know it mm-hmm. kind of acknowledges yeah. it and, and sticks his tongue out and then we kind of move on and it's, just, it's a wonderful thing that it isn't so storyboarded as you said that you can't include this element in it it feels just right you know just you know plainly it's conceived and everyone is well prepared and there's a good there's a good plan in place but it's not so rigid i mean you know i think if you're again i don't want to bash scorsese use my uh, favorite filmmaker <laughs> ever basically but but that rolling stones documentary he he did was shine a light well shine a light was a was an example of a movie that's over storyboarded i mean here's a band that there that was a band that at that point had been had 
you know has they they're running on inertia basically from arena to arena and everything is is planned and there's no spontaneity to that film at all other just a lot of st- style good style mm-hmm. but it's nothing it doesn't feel as organic i guess as this does despite it being very conceptual well i mean that being said do you have a favorite number in this your favorite uh, section of the film favorite song I don't know that it's my favorite song, but in the context of the film, I really like Slippery People because mm-hmm. it's kind of the first time you get the full picture, you know, like the everyone's on stage, the singers are doing their thing and Vern is dancing. And it's just like, I feel like it's the the first big peak mm-hmm. of the movie. It's like going down the roller coaster hill, kind of, you know, the adrenaline goes up a lot. Yeah, I mean, things do sort of pick up, but the, the mine is... A little bit earlier, but I have to confess, you know, I saw this film. I've been really trying not to think too hard about Jonathan Demme having passed (laughs) uh, because he was such an important filmmaker to me and and, and such a necessary voice now, right? Uh, You know, he's he's the anti-Trump, you know, he's the most humane, you know, globally minded, um, sincere, sincere, (laughs) earnest, you know, true American Mm -hmm. uh, melting pot kind of a guy. And um, definitely a believer in democracy as well. Totally. And and, and just in in exploring new sounds. And, you know, so I got confess, I I was like fighting back tears through much of this film Mm -hmm. Uh, and burning down the house was was when I really got choked up seeing that because that was I mean, you talked about uh, slippery people you know which is certainly when a lot of when everybody's out there and mm-hmm. the whole thing the whole machine is is working but bringing on the house is, is an up-tempo number it's their biggest hit isn't it do they have a bigger hit i, than think, I don't the think so no. um so, so it's, it's a, wild, wild it's a terrific life, it's a terrific song and you know everybody's on the stage it's it's there's so much joy i mean that's that's the one where the percussionist pulls the face which is what which is one of my favorite shots in the movie and you know so so at least in, in this viewing that, that was the song that really got to me i think Maybe this this time through it might be this must be the place because I, I love that mm-hmm. song I love the staging of that you know and we should pause to give some credit here to Adele Lutz uh, who was Burns' girlfriend at the time and later wife and mm-hmm. uh, designer and did a lot of the stage design and I believe she designed the big the big suit mm-hmm. um, oh, the suit but, is so great but it's also the, a song that I haven't heard quite as often as the others because I played this soundtrack to death uh, you know this is one of the first oh, tapes yeah. I bought. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I listened to it a lot before I ever saw the movie, and in 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 the nineteen eighties, you couldn't fit all the songs on 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 a cassette tape. So, and this must be the place. Remarkably, is not on the, the original soundtrack. It's on wow. the expanded soundtrack version hmm. of this. So that one sort of sounds a little fresher to me. Actually, the first time I saw this movie was. Rock and roll was not really encouraged in in my house. Uh, <laughs> he grew up in the town in Footloose. <laughs> kind of, well, I grew up with parents who recall calling their friends when the Beatles were on Ann Sullivan to, to express their shock and dismay that the sport noise oh. was let out on television. Oh, uh, so this was actually the I watched this movie for the first time on on video cassette. Uh, one odd weekend, I'm not even sure they went. My parents went out of town and left me um, as a. 16 year old i think i was responsible enough to be on my own uh so i rode my bike down to the video store and rented uh i watched for the first time uh this film and a hard day's night back to back so wow. it was a it was my rock and roll weekend and, and uh yeah that sounds like a great weekend that is a good like keith phipps origin yeah. story <laughs> and i like and i like how you're on your own at 16 and you yeah. bike and yet and you get a couple of uh music films rather than going straight to the unrated films or like the like the nude aerobics films or whatever sure so i appreciate i appreciate your dedication to the cinema even at, even at that age but i, I agree the set movies list, and music man movies uh, and music i mean the, the soundtrack was my first exposure to the uh, talking heads i mean the, 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 
the track list is absurd. I mean, Psycho Killer, Heaven, Burning Down the House, Life During Wartime, This Must Be the Place, Once in a Lifetime, Girlfriend is Better, and, you know, Take Me to the River. These are huge mm-hmm. uh, songs, and I'm trying to think, like, were they all hits, or are they, are they just hits because they're in Stop Making Sense, and I've heard them my whole life, and they're just classic songs. Yeah, I think retroactively, they're, they're well, I mean, they're hits for those of us who are, are of the sort of indie alternative uh, of, I mean, these, these are, this is the Beatles of a certain type of music. I mean, I remember in, in the early 2000s, everyone wanted to be the talking heads and, and uh, yeah. that, that, that kind of faded, but I think their, their influence is still, is still huge. Yeah, for sure. It's worth noting also, this is kind of the end for the talking heads as a, as a live act. They had a few more shows after this. Uh, there's a show in Milwaukee, I think a couple shows in New Zealand, and then they stopped performing as a, as a live act, which is, you know, it's hard not to watch this and just think about all the shows they could have, they could have done. <laughs> but I mean, if I remember correctly, the tension was kind of between Burn and the rest of the band. The, the rest mm-hmm. of the band would, wanted to be a touring rock band. And uh, I think Burn wanted to do like, you know, theatrical numbers in between uh, mm-hmm. twin songs after a certain Dance point. with lamps. Yeah, yeah. This seems to me that it's a nice mix of of his artistic uh, ambitions and stagecraft and and actual the the amount you can you can stretch what it is to be a rock and roll band and still be a rock and roll band. I'll I'll admit, like I'm not a huge Talking Heads fan outside of this film, sure. which I I love and is probably my biggest exposure to them. So I I did not have that context that it was like kind of the end of them touring and. If there was any animosity, it does not come through in the performance or the film at all. Like this seems like a group that really enjoys playing together. Yeah, I'm not sure where everyone was. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, not an expert on the biography of, of of the band, but I mean, I, I think certainly tension started to creep in increasingly after this, as as Burns' ambitions to be a filmmaker and all these other things uh, um, started to distract from from uh, the band. And I think maybe you can read a little bit of spatial disconnect between Byrne and the rest of the band in the sense that, you know, I mean, he starts by himself on stage. The other band members are going to have to wait to come on one at a time. And and then there's a break where he goes off and for a costume change and the Tom Tom Club plays their one song, you know, and it's not really... Um, but I mean, really, that's a win for the Tom Tom Club, not not Burn. <laughs> it is, it is, uh, it is that. Um, it, it, whenever I hear that Tom Tom Club song, it's it, what I actually hear is "Let's all go to the lobby." <laughs> I, I'm with you, and I do love that song. I just don't, I don't love this performance mm. uh, of that song. I mean, the, the recorded version of that is, uh, you know, as evidence of being sampled on a, a billion different hip hop songs is 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 amazing. Um, but live, it you know. It is, you know, for all the all the wonderful musicianship on display, that that live dish doesn't really work for me. Although Tina Weymouth's bass playing in that is pretty pretty amazing. But maybe that's, I mean, that was that was kind of a somewhat difficult situation to have it grafted onto what was really the Talking Head show. Sure, he had he needed time to put on the suit though. I'm sure he, I'm sure Burn appreciated the break to get into costume.
I wanted to say another thing about Stop Making Sense, which is I think I, f- I consider the film, especially after seeing it this time, to be an assertion of Demi's basic values as a filmmaker. You know, Melvin and Howard, I think, which he made in 1980, was one of the most important films about America, I think, made in that decade. But, but he was all, he's always been a director who's thought globally you know and he always appreciated this country the most when you know different voices were singing in harmony and i mean you look at a film like you know married to the mob or you know something wild or they have these they'll have like you know a haitian actor or or some very quirky piece of world music that you that is on that's unexpected and he and david byrne who are very are very like-minded in the sense that you know they're both attuned to a lot of different sounds and the melding of different sounds and it has a joyous sort of melting pot quality that would come through in his fiction films as well and give them that distinct something i mean i've I've talked about it before as being uh, the demi touch uh, like the ernst lubitsch touch and that it's hard to identify and articulate exactly what it is but you kind of know you're watching a Jonathan Demi film, and I think it's just because there's just all of this life that is kind of put into it in a lot of subtle ways, and one of those ways has to do with the incorporation of, of a diverse casts and diverse sounds and, and, and just this, this wonderful melting pot quality. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about like what the, sti- the visual signatures that you can find in all of Demi's films, and nothing really comes to mind. They're all great-looking mm-hmm. movies. Um, Maybe and, in his concert films, you can, well, we'll get more into that yeah, in the second yeah. half, but I think you can definitely see some signature shots. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. But it is really more, you know, like you said, it, it's, a, it's a touch, it's, it's an attitude, mm-hmm. it's sort of a sort of a, a spirit of, of, of it, uh, all these sort of like intangibles that, that uh, I'm sure are frustrating for a lot of people when we talk about them, but <laughs> nonetheless, <laughs> there, there they are. Well, if you've watched the film recently, as you should, you'll know what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. I mean, where, where do you see... I mean, we talked a little bit about The Last Waltz, and you know, my keynote talked about Let's Spend the Night Together, but where do you see this fitting into, into the history of concert films, and, and do you see its influence on subsequent concert films? Totally. I mean, I think, I think this changed the game. There's just certain values at play, specifically... Well, a few things. I mean, one, planning. <laughs> um, you know, Two, understanding how much of the audience to bring in, which is not much, but a little bit. Mm-hmm. An important little bit. When you, it you matters. Have to, you, you have to, yeah, you can't you can't do a concert film where you don't know they're there at all. But Demi's thing is to stay on the stage. But, and, go ahead. So, sorry, I was just thinking of the the Robin Hitchcock uh, storefront Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah, storefront Hitchcock. Like that one was just a really uh, did some interesting things with the audience. Where because I mean it was literally like people like passing yeah. by, you yeah. know. So that was that was like isolated him from the audience in a very like distinctive, purposeful way. But yeah, and that was just one, too, I think, where... And we'll talk about this when we get into the Timberlake film, but I think he he thinks hard about venue and and mm-hmm. and and how best to feature a musician, and you know, and you know if that means putting him in an arena, and, and it's an arena show, you do it one way uh, with somebody. If you got Robin Hitchcock with an acoustic guitar, um, you do it a different way. And here, I think the way the audience is incorporated is important. Uh, and influential staying on the stage is the level of planning that it went, it went into it you know the conceptual arc of the show i mean i think you, you can see that in a, in a lot of concert films i think it improved uh this it just raised the bar mm-hmm. for, for for concert films i don't think we really saw anything other than the last waltz and uh, a couple of other films that were on this level 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of something like like Rattle and Hum, which came a few years later, yeah. kind of kind of takes the wrong lessons away from it. Where I think it ups the the visual sort of grandeur. It kind of takes what was here and runs with it, but sure. it also forgets to keep the band human. It's just so much about the iconography of the band. It's like I feel like some films took away the wrong lesson from from this. Well, I, I think for Rattle and Hum borrowed inadvertently from Spinal Tap. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they both have a scene in, in Graceland, for God's sakes, yeah. where they're all, uh, where they're all sort of acting as pretentious as possible. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and again, with that, that movie, it's like, you've got U2. U2 is, you know, one of the most acclaimed live acts there is, you know, just to stay with them yep. on the stage and let, let it, let it, uh, ride so uh, that one isn't an example but of course Demi himself would go on to do I mean his Neil Young films particularly Neil Young Heart of Gold is, is I think beautifully handled that's the only one I've seen how are the other two um, Journeys and I haven't seen Trunk Show I haven't seen Trunk Show mm-hmm. um, Journeys is good he did this film called Into Abitable. I, um, I think I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, Music Life, which is about an, an Italian musician, which I wasn't that into because I, I, just, I, I wasn't really connecting with the music very yeah. much. But it is certainly another example of him kind of wandering the world and, and filming what interests him musically. I like Sir Hitchcock a lot. I think. Yeah, so. yeah, and I mean, as far as, as far as other concert film films go, I mean, I, you know, a movie like Year of the Horse by uh, Jim Jarmusch. I mean, that that does have a lot of backstage nonsense but but the performances are shot in you know in 16 millimeter and and are very cinematic and and feel like they share a lot of the values in common with uh stop making sense so i think, I think it's quite quite influential um you know and maybe some of these you know i i don't know all these these uh live supplements that i was sort of talking about earlier but you know again i, I think it's a standard that filmmakers would work toward more often than not you know after this movie came out Culture films aspire to the condition of uh, stop making sense. Yeah. Anything else here that that really kind of connects this to the rest of Demi's career that that you see? One thing, and, and this like kind of piggybacks on what Scott was talking about, just like kind of the uh, appreciation for the a larger world and a larger view, I guess. But just kind of the spirit of camaraderie that you uh, sense on, on stage. Like one of the things I love watching stop making sense is watching them watch each other, mm-hmm. um, which is something that bands have to do when they're performing live but like you there's there's this great shot during heaven where burn is in the foreground and waymouth is in the background kind of watching him sing and you know she's watching him like i said because that's what bands do and i could be wrong about this but they don't have in-ear monitors i don't know where in-ear monitors even a thing at this point oh gosh i don't know yeah Yeah. so so i think they're mostly depending on just their on stage monitors Mm -hmm. for sound which would make it even more necessary that they kind of watch each other for for cues and watch burn specifically for cues but you know you see it with with burn and the the singers and kind of all of them but just the the sense that they are playing in part for each other, not just for the audience. They're not playing out at the audience. They're playing in. I think that's kind of like a heady, pretentious way to put it. But, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's a very kind of uh, internal communal sense to the performance that I think is really of a like part of the Demi spirit. You know, I, I th- keep go- thinking in my head of the scene and Rachel getting married, the big like kind of musical communal scene there. And it kind of has that same energy of like we're, we're having fun creating something and putting on a performance, and oh, I think wedding, that's kind of beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that's a good. That the wedding in that movie is so great. Mm-hmm. I mean, who would that, who, I would love to have been at that wedding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, moments of awkwardness aside, <laughs> the other thing to appreciate too, and this is this is a tribute to to the band, is how much they thought through every song and how they they choreographed 
there are da- little dances, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, where they're, where they're all doing this sort of aerobics <laughs> on stage or, or they're kind of shimmying back and forth in, in time with each other. And certainly David Byrne has thought through, here's how I'm going to dance here and here, and then I'm going to put on the box suit, and that's going to be a thing. And, I'm, and there's a, with every number, there's kind of a new surprise and a new dynamic beyond the music uh, that has to do with just pure stagecraft you know and then of course there's the there are slides and silhouettes you know and then of course just right from the beginning just him the striking visual of of a bare stage and his little um tape player and him you know it's just uh, and he's playing to the camera in an interesting way there's just all these always constant surprise and constant movement going on on a performance level that keeps the film interesting and, and keeps it from getting stale yeah, I mean, it's definitely what happens when a band that formed an art school makes yeah. makes a movie and puts on a show. It's but like Rhode Island, right? Yeah, Rhode Island School of Design. But mm-hmm. but it's also there's there's all these things pulling against that. I mean, the music itself is just so infectious and and funky, and and there's so much and spontaneity in the moment. It, I mean, they've played these songs a million times, but does it seem like they've played these songs a million times? Never, never to me, at least. No, I mean, maybe that's the magic of of, of just of finding some extraordinary middle ground between you know the conceptual and the planned uh and, and the you know orchestrated and the spontaneous and, and dynamic and new you know just it's a very hard thing to strike usually you're either in one camp or the other camp mm-hmm. but this, this, this film both on a directorial level and a performance level you know sort of meets in the middle it's pretty good yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's wonderful all right well with that we'll uh wrap up our discussion for now of stop making sense we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode we went up river twice with our last episode a look at burden of dreams and the lost city of z for one listener this brought to mind another river trip and this is a only real piece of feedback we got for this episode and it's and it's long and a little strange but we like it S- uh, scott care to share this one yeah, though I gotta say, I feel like one of those judges is like, okay, I'm gonna allow this. <laughs> I'm gonna allow this very strange thing. I'm gonna want to see where you're going with this, but uh, I'll try. Okay, this is Robbie in Chicago. He writes, "When I saw Burden of Dreams for the first time about a month ago, I was struck by another connection, something that could have been its own the next picture show pairing." Well. Maybe not. After watching Burden of Dreams, I watched the music video for the Culture Club song Karma Chameleon. Uh, There's a different kind of riverboat involved, but the aesthetic seemed similar to Fitzcarraldo and, by extension, Burden of Dreams. The more I thought about it, the more the two seemed linked. Was he on something here? We will see. Um, Both works deal with the impossibility of trying to bring ideas into reality and the pain caused by the disparity. Karma Chameleon contains the line, Lovin' would be easy if your color were... (laughs) Oh, for God's sake. Robbie is trolling Scott uh, right I know. now, and I love okay. it. Keep going, Scott. Karma Chameleon contains the line, Lovin' would be easy if your colors were like my dreams, <laughs> uh, which I imagine would resonate with Herzog, at least the version of him in the film, who expresses how difficult it can be to know so clearly what you want and to see reality fall further and further away from that ideal. Both works depict men who pursue their dreams to their own detriment, even while realizing the damage they're causing themselves. My love is an addiction. It's a line from Karma Chameleon. <laughs> Made worse by an inability to explain their desires to others. Like the actors leaving the production of Fitzcarraldo and the fights with uh, Klaus Kinski. Uh, there's a line, again, in Karma Chameleon. I'm the man who doesn't know how to sell a contradiction. You come and go. Uh, the pain you of the creators. You come and go. <laughs> you come and go. Uh, no. 
we're, we're, we're butchering poor Robbie's letter here, but uh, uh, with, with a certain amount of affection and love here. Uh, the pain of the creators leads to Pyrrhic victories for both works. Fitzcarraldo was a lasting and revered work of cinema. Carmen Chameleon became an enormous hit, but the pain that it took to produce these works, provided Carmen Chameleon is autobiographical, is so clearly expressed, I can't help but wonder if that success outweighs the pain for the creators. And both are understood by modern audiences, not just by the texts themselves, but by their broader cultural context. In many cases, with the cultural context eclipsing the work's original meaning and reducing it to a joke. For some, Karma Chameleon is just a silly pop song with a chorus that sounds like, comma, 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 chameleon. <laughs> and Burden of Dreams is just a source for Herzog impression material. P.S. <laughs> it keeps going. Stuck in that mindset, I watched the Roberto Rossellini film Stromboli the following night which bears a striking narrative-slash-emotional resemblance to the City Lobber hit, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, but that's another story for another time. That's a pretty great letter. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm going to leave it to you to unpack it. I think we should probably post this on the Facebook page as well so people can a- analyze it for uh, just how serious a piece of work it is. But I mean, if he's pulling our leg, he put in the work. Yeah. And to that, I say kudos, Robbie. And, like, I buy it. For for what it's worth, the Karma Chameleon video was directed and written by uh, Peter Sinclair. This is as a director, this is his biggest claim to fame. But as as a cinematographer, he has had a long and 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 still in progress career. Uh, Worked on a lot of music stuff. uh, Was cinematographer for things like Sign of the Times and a couple of Madonna videos. He started out in uh, in uh, British soft porn uh, as (laughs) as the, the DP of a film called Adventures of a Taxi Driver, which is came out the same year as Taxi Driver, but I, I my understanding is they're very different films. Can you not so. use the term DP when discussing soft porn? <laughs> soft, <laughs> it's soft core. Come on. Yeah. Soft porn. I was like, oh boy. It's a no P uh, situation. <laughs> but yes, so there's your background information. I don't know if that supports or undermines the, the theory at work here. This is Boy George's vision. I think he's talking about more than Peter Sinclair's, mm. though, I would say. But something to think about, and uh, it's also, I think, one of those things where you watch a couple of things in, in a row or, or near each other, and certain connections emerge. I mean, that's always one of my favorite parts of going to a film festival, is just like a bunch of random films that made the slate, and then suddenly, you know, you've got three or four films with one really weird, specific thing they all have in common. So uh, maybe uh, this is the same dynamic at work. But uh, thank you for that, Robbie. Yeah. This is a podcast about finding connections, and that includes cross-medium connections. So, well done. So, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Demi's final film, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids, to see how he approached a different sort of musical event. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcast or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we may be saying to ourselves, this is not our beautiful podcast. This is not our beautiful podcast. This is not my beautiful house.